Hello, uh, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. It is the 7th of March. This year is speeding by, um, which is, you know, strange. But uh, today we have a special guest. It's Julian Agen. He's a Chamorro activist, lawyer, and writer. We're really excited to have him on today. And we want to thank Tammy's colleague, Christine Ahn of Korea, pa- uh, Korea Peace Now for the introduction. Tammy, is that right? Yeah. Thanks, okay. Christine. Um. Julian lives in Guam. Uh, he's the Pacific Island where he is from, and he's an attorney with Blue Ocean Law, which fights for the sovereignty and health of indigenous people and against extractive corporations in the United States military. We're going to talk about a lot of that. He is also a member of the Global Advisory uh, Council of Progressive International, and he has a new book out, which is called The Properties of Perpetual Light, a poetic multi-genre book that Alice Walker has called Powerful and Beautiful. And it's going to be out in what, Julian, you said 22 days, 20 days? Yeah, March 29th. So quite March soon. March 29th. That is what you hear right now is Julian's voice. Um, we all read the book. Julian, I don't know, to, to just to start off, you know, like, I found the book very moving. And um, I think you write very well. And the, you know, the sort of way that you switched between genres, I didn't know what to expect from the book. But then I was reading it and I was like, oh, wow, this is really refreshing and and cool in a lot of ways and you know there's like a i think there's a commencement speech that you gave that's in there there's several poems that you wrote there are these sort of vignettes that you write and um yeah you know i, I know that it's early in guam where you're right now what, what time is it 7 a.m <laughs> <laughs> okay, trooper so, yeah <laughs> all right do you get up early i've started getting up at four o'clock in the morning recently and it is driving God. me crazy i don't even know why i just wake up and then i'm like oh i can't go back to sleep 4 a.m and like That's my kids i have a young child so it's not because my young child actually gets up at like 8 30 you know so it's like Jesus. it's not i can't blame it on anything it's just i'm up at four o'clock every day and then i just read twitter or something which is like the least healthy thing to do <laughs> at 4 a.m when you can't sleep so um thank you for joining us here um yeah so we're gonna we're gonna talk to you a bit about uh um, you know, about your work. We're going to talk to you about the book, but I thought that we could just start with, you know, just some of what, what is this book? You know, like, why did you write it? And, and, you know, like, um, you know, you're a lawyer by trade, not all lawyers are poets. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, you know, what, what's the, what was journey writing this book? Sure. Um, well, thanks. Thank you all for having me. Um, so at bottom, it's a love letter, you know, just plain and simple. It's a love letter to indigenous peoples everywhere, especially young people, um, people who are, you know, up against sort of one force or another, and they're struggling to find language to graft themselves onto the world. You know, a lot of indigenous Mm. peoples in this part of the world, in the Pacific, um, indigenous young climate justice warriors, for example, you know, we are up against such, like, you know, our work is Herculean. It's just, it's, it takes yeah. so much out of us. And part of what this is, is it's just this letter to indigenous peoples who are trying to wrap our arms around what matters, you know, which is the earth and each other. And I just wanted this book to be about that and to be about beauty and about love and for them primarily. Mm. Well, that, yeah, that, that's, uh, and so you, you were, you had an audience in mind, right? That would not be like, necessarily three people in the United States, um, you know, but I, I don't know, it seemed to, tra- like, there was so much layering of, inf- you know, not, and I don't think it was intentional, you know, like information and things that I didn't know about and traditions that I didn't know about, um, that it it certainly, you know, it, it, it was, it felt more, I don't want to use the word universal, but it's certainly something that I, you know, that I felt like I vibed with, right? Like, and so it's interesting to hear I don't know, I guess like out of that, the old thing that you learned in MFA, which is like the specific is the universal. I don't know. I think you nailed it. Oh, I don't, yeah. don't want to like, I don't want to spend, I'm usually not this nice, but I really did love, I, I really did like the book. So, yeah, Jay. Um, I really appreciate that. And I think you're right. I think that's exactly what it should do. If the writing is good enough, you know, the universal is supposed to live in the particular. So these right. are stories that are like, you know, deeply personal to my own experience, you know, but that's what I was doing because I can't do anything else, you know? The only sort of way that I can write is just authentically. And if I can call light from my own lived experience and my own life, then I could find some insight there. You know, 
Um, and, and the book, in some ways, it has no period. It's, it's, it has a lot of anarchy because there's different pieces. They're not necessarily connected. So I say in the introduction that what connects the pieces in this book is not their subject matter, but their, you know, their spirit, which more than anything else is a spirit of insistence, an insistence on life, even at, I mean, an insistence at life, in, on life at any hour, even the hour of death. So there's also a lot of death in the book. There's a lot of loss mm. and a lot of grief. And so I cover a wide range of personal losses, like the loss of my father in certain pieces, the loss of my a person who functioned like a second father to me, um, the great Marshallese statesman, Tony DeBroom, and I include a mm. eulogy in the book for him. So yeah, they're really personal, but I, I'm hoping, you know, that they, they do ring true and resonate for readers everywhere uh, because we all experience loss, you know? This is just a part of the stuff of being human and being alive. Yeah. 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 Well, That's so well put. Just to give a little preview of what your life is going to be like in 25 days where it's, presumably you'll be doing a lot of these Zoom, Zoom-type meetings and you'll be uh, reading from your book. Uh, you know, <laughs> is there, can you read a little bit for it, uh, from it? Because... You know, I, Tammy suggested this and I, you know, when I was reading the book, I was like, oh, of course, you know, like it would be great for us to just for the listeners to just hear, you know, what your voice is like and and what, what you're writing about. So, yeah, like, go ahead. Go with the moon, my godfather says. He's a teledzeru, meaning he throws net and he knows things like what time of year the Minyahak run which is the actual question I asked. Seriously, Nino, I say. Seriously, he says. You get your gear ready in April because that's the first run. Late April into early May. You get seven days, maybe 10, but that's it. So you gotta be ready. Then he self-corrects. Tells me those months don't matter. Not really anyway. Tells me for the second time that what matters is the moon. The last quarter moon, the real thin one, that's the one we want, he says, his voice trailing, his eyes fixed on a grayish blob moving in the distance. I don't ask any more questions, just watch. Watch the gray blob, which is really a school of baby rabbit fish, come into focus. Watch a quiet man grow even more quiet, Watch a white net spread itself out like a circular dream and drop. And I am in awe. Never, ever have I seen something so quiet be so alive. That's great. Ooh, that's so nice. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, at the, the one thing I don't, I don't mean to ask all the questions here, but, you know, I, I'm just eager about it. Just, um, the, there's a mention of, and in your introduction, you also talk about how this is also a book about writers, right? Like it is a book where, you, and you mentioned Arundhati Roy, you mentioned Sherman Alexie. Can you just talk about that a little bit? Like what is, and I don't, I don't want to use like a horrible term, like, like what is like the meta, like, you know, literary analysis that is placed <laughs> upon this, but right. Like what, like yeah. in what ways is it a, is it a book about writers? Cause the, the part about Sherman Alexie, I found to be particularly moving because, you know, like he was somebody who, when I was like 18, 19 years old is also, you know, a big influence or somebody that I aspired to be. And, you know, um, yes, yeah, just, just talk about that. Like what, 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 what is, how is this also a book about writers? Sure. Um, so in the Sherman Alexie story, for example, I'm talking about being 19 and so profoundly unsure about every aspect of life. You know, and I, I, I'm in a bookstore in Spokane, Auntie's bookstore and walking up to him and I, I say things um, like he, he I, yeah, so I won't repeat the whole story here. But basically, I talk about that experience. I, I think the last line says um, something like, um, so I turn and say nothing. And I... Um, so I turn and say nothing and drag my wordlessness with me out into the busy street because I was like this, this, this idea, right. Of young people and wordlessness, this idea that our words are just waiting, you know, to, they're like, um, like Arundhati would say, our words are waiting in our pen, you know, for writers. But so many young people are really in this terrible 
place, you know, where they have a lot to say. They clearly have an opinion about the world around them and they just don't have their sort of words at the ready, so to speak. And so I actually tried to turn it and, and, and the only way I could do it, obviously, is by talking about the writers that so profoundly influenced me. So I talk about Alice Walker, yeah, Arundhati, um, Toni Morrison, I mean, so many. And I also talk about a wave of new um, Native American writers like Tommy Orange, who wrote There, There, and Therese yeah. Melhot, who wrote Heart Fairies, and, and like Billy Ray Belcourt, who wrote This Wound is a World, you know? And I'm trying to, what I'm trying to do, well, I wasn't really aware of it, to be frank, in the beginning. But halfway through the book, I realized, oh, I can actually use footnotes in the way that I believe that they were meant to be used, which is really unacademically, but very mm-hmm. personally. And I say personally because I actually had, a, it became very crystallized for me what I was doing with the footnotes about all of these writers. I was trying to reference them like points of light for young readers who may or may not be familiar with them. You know, and I tried to do it really lovingly and generously so that I could eliminate some of that distance that often happens between a writer and a reader most often because of the vanity of the writer, you know? And I tried <laughs> yeah. to just strip that bear. And, you know, because I, it, it, you know, can I be, can I just say something totally random? I actually thought about something Joni Mitchell said about her album Blue in an interview with Rolling Stone. She said in, in, in recording that particular album Blue, she felt she had no defenses at all. It was such a particularly vulnerable moment in her life, but she said the music had no defenses either. And she said something that was quite profound. Um, she said she felt like cellophane wrapper or cellophane paper wrapped around a pack of cigarettes. It's that transparent. And I was like, wow, I wonder if I could do that with a book. I wonder if I could make my own record, you know, in this way and actually have no distance and no pretense and no arrogance, you know? And I tried my best to do that same thing for young people That's by offering them writers. So like, yeah. Yeah. You, I don't know. I, I, I took a workshop when I was 22 years old with a, with a writer who I very much admire and is still a friend of mine. I remember he was like, your books need to just be tablets, you know, like, they cannot exist outside of the world of the thing <laughs> on the shelf, right? And like that's how he wrote. I mean, his stories, short stories, are are perfectly crafted, and there's no light in or out, right? They are dense things, basically. And it's interesting to hear a different. You know, I agree. It's like there is a certain sort of implied arrogance there, right? Like where you're sort of like, I will, you know, this is me, and and nothing else is. And but of course, it's false, right? Like we we all have so many writers that influence us and cop we basically just copy i've just basically just been copying orwell recently you know i've just been re- realizing this and just like, i'm just like basically like, just, just i don't know it's like a phase or something like that where i'm just like all right i'm just read all these essays you know where he's making difficult points a lot of which i disagree with you know but i'm just like what clarity you know and it's like well i'll just copy this you know uh, <laughs> But I would never admit it outside of the podcast. You know? <laughs> I'm like, what are you talking about? This is my voice. <laughs> I don't just keep the Project Gutenberg of Orwell's essays open at all times when I'm writing and just like kind of read over and then type and then read over. And then type. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, all right. Anyway, I'm sorry about for asking all the questions. Tammy or Andy, do you have do you have questions here? Yeah, maybe we could just rewind a little bit, Julian. I was wondering if you could talk about your upbringing in Guam. And and then I know you, I mean, you mentioned Spokane. I know you ended up at Gonzaga and then in Hawaii for law school. Um, talk about your geographic journey and also, you know, why you've, why you've chosen this path for yourself, lawyering and writing. Sure. Um, so I'm an indigenous Chamorro person, uh, born and raised on Guam. Guam, you know, is many things, uh, but it's still a U.S. administered non-self-governing territory. So we're still formally recognized by the international community as a colony. So we have a live self-determination struggle on the ground. People who long to be free, you know, Mm. and so that's sort of the air that I breathe, even without thinking about it. Like, I'm, yes, I litigate about it. I've been through the U.S. federal court system. I've been lead litigator in Davis versus Guam, which is a major case um, that a plaintiff filed under both the 15th and 14th Amendments to the U.S. Constitution. You see, I almost... I. I can't even help but slip into that legal voice because that's one <laughs> yeah, of the amazing. words that I do. do you... <laughs> yeah, but it's funny. The book was such in a your wonderful. Blood now. <laughs> yeah, it is. But 
<laughs> the book honestly was such a wonderful break from that voice um, because I got to write about the other Guam, you know, where my mm. people live beyond the colonial gaze, you know, where we get to play and grow up and learn how to fish and, you know, be in awe by star sand, you know, like, and, you know, and the beauty, I got to write a lot about and remember, like, just take so much solace in the natural beauty of this place. Um, This is a beautiful island. Guam is the largest and southernmost island in the Mariana Island chain. Uh, my people, you know, have, you know, we, there's so much I can say, but we're indigenous, we're matrilineal, you know, we, we, our highest sort of cultural value is inafa maulik, this sense of reciprocity and duty toward each other. And we are very relational in everything that we do. I mean, it, it is this almost like a hearth, you know? And I was like, 2020 was such a cold year and I needed the fire from that hearth, you know? I needed to put my, I, I was trying to, in, in writing the book, I was almost had like my arms and hands outstretched. I'm trying to feel that heat, you know? And I was trying to bring it to other people too, because it was such a bad year. I mean, my God, 2020 was when America's chickens came home to roost. All of them mm. at once. <laughs> like, Seriously. It was well, still, I think they're still roosting in 2020. Yeah, yeah, true, true. Oh, gosh. But, but yeah, no, it was. Yeah, it's hard. It was but, like, yeah, but just to speak about Guam, though, it, it really became clear, right? Because all these structural inequalities and entrenched oppressions and injustice, they are already around. You know, they're lying around. But the, something about the pan- pandemic in particular laid all of them bare. Yeah. It just really exposed it for what it was. Like Guam was playing host to like one infected nuclear, like aircraft carrier. I mean, it was yeah. shipped to another, like the USS Theodore Roosevelt and the soldiers were running around violating our local government's executive orders, going to restaurants, infecting people. Really? Like this is, yeah, it's, it's madness what we went through here. And I had so much rage, you know, it was like my rage was threatened to swallow everything else. And then, so yeah, I didn't actually set out in 2020 to write a book. I didn't know exactly what I was going to do. Mm. I just wrote because I couldn't not write. I that was it. Yeah. And then I had no agenda. It's just rage and love. Yet I just had and I and something to do with it. You know, so writing is like a shelf. It's like a place to put something sometimes. Yeah. And so that's where I grew up and a place I still love deeply and fight for as a lawyer for the most part. Um, in college, like you said, I'm sorry, I'm Tammy. I realize I didn't really answer your question yet. No, <laughs> sorry, I get passionate. You, talking you're about answering. Wrong. You're answering. Okay, great. <laughs> so, and then I went off to college, and um, uh, you know, found like in search of our mother's gardens, "Woman as Prose" by Alice Walker, which I talk about in the book, and That's became great. a woman's studies major. Yeah. And I was just like, oh, I am going to read feminist prose all day and all night. You know, so that's what, <laughs> you know, I, I, other than listening to Bob Marley, and that's what I was uh. focused on in college, you know? <laughs> so I did all of that and lived in Spokane, which is a very interesting place. I don't uh. I won't, I won't try to reach for another adjective because I'm not sure yet how I feel about Spokane. I mean, it was a complicated place. Complicated place. Yeah. And when I was there, there was a lot of racism and a lot of homophobia. We even had to make a documentary about it. It was really quite bad um, during my time. And then, and then realized, and then leaving, you know, and then sort of hating it, spending the summers there. I, I was traveling around and that's how I ended up in, you know, India working for Mother Teresa when I was, you know, 18, mm-hmm. uh, which I write about in the book as well. Um, and then uh, law school in Hawaii, wanting to be closer to home, you know, um, because the law to me, like I didn't, thank God, I was fortunate, very fortunate to go as not a person who was so young, who was, you know, like not at this clean slate, this empty vessel waiting to be filled, you know? No, I went as a fully formed person, like an activist, you know, and I knew yeah. that the law was always already a moving train. And I knew that Howard Zinn told me I can't be neutral on those things. So I was good. I didn't have any sort of illusions about what the law was. I just went there and gathered a a tool, a a particular set of skills and left. And then Mm. I've been home ever since. Did you always write? Did you always write poetry? Oh, God, no. No, no, no. I I don't even consider (laughs) myself a poet. And I've never really written poetry ever until this book. And it was, Mm. yeah. So I don't even uh, know what I'm doing, by the way. uh, (laughs) Well, you I did a great got, job. Well, thank you. 
in some ways it's a relief not to have studied like writing for example not yeah. to have gone to try to get an MFA and to be obsessed with all the rules because then I would be so worried about breaking them but because I don't know them they're you know they're open for the breaking you know yeah 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 there's there's, there's no real you don't learn any useful rules outside of uh, <laughs> you know um, I don't know actually I don't think they're I can't remember I went to MFA pro I don't oh, really you did. remember any yeah, but it was like, you know, it was a good place to be when I was 22 years old. Because I was just like, well, whatever, you know, I'm in New York City and I'll, you know, now I can go out and I can be someone in the, a young person in the city. And that's what it, you know, that's what it was. I went into a lot of debt for that, which is, I guess I could have just rented an apartment and taken out a loan, but it was fine. <laughs> um, and so actually, you know, just in terms of that, I was interested in this. Maybe this is a very basic question, but I do think it's, you know, it's one that I don't know. Is that the writers that you mentioned, right? Uh, Tony Morrison, Tommy Orange, even. Right? Um, I don't know. The, I, the listen, if you're a listener to the show, I think most of the listeners of the show would enjoy that book, There, There, right? Um, especially sure. if you live in the Bay Area, even, you know, where yeah. um, it takes place. It is, a, I mean, it is a crushing book to read. Um, and Sherman Alexi. Like, so you know, coming from Guam and, and reading growing up, right? Like, like how, how do you identify with, with different authors, right? Like where, like, you know, you talk about Sherman Alexa, you talk about Tommy Orange, you talk about indigenous American authors. Like, how does that transference happen to you in Guam? Right? Like, why, why do you identify, like, how do you identify in that way? Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, that's a great question, but it's actually difficult. Yeah, I'll I'll try to answer, but truthfully, I just think that we are all, we are, in some ways, we're like our countries. We're a lot more porous than we believe. You know, Mm. borders are over. You know, this, and I I see that way. I mean, that's the way I feel about literature and I feel about good writing because it's, it's, it has transcendent power. I think that's the actual fundamental truth about literature, if it's good, you know? And I don't mean the canon, like the snobby sort of preconceived notion of what's good, but I mean, if it's good, meaning it can move you, meaning it can, um, it like, to me, I see good literature and good books almost like meals that have been prepared with love, you know? Like that's, they, they nourish you. And I think that's what good literature should do. I don't think it should help you, you know, I don't know, be more fancy or have more party chat, you know? Like, I mean, that, it should just help you deeply because you're in need of help. And I think all of these books, for me, Sherman Alexi, like um, Reservation Blues or at the time as a young person or Louise Erdrich's Love Medicine. Oh my God. Mm-hmm. I even wrote a footnote about her. I thought, because as a young person, I thought in real life, Louise must be so kind and generous because her actual proclivity to make, you know, no, no one point of view dominate any other, you know, I was like this non-dominance, this, like this, it's just love. You know, I, I know this is such a ridiculous answer to your question because I'm talking about love now, but, uh, <laughs> but it's actually feels true to me. It, it really does. Like, I mean, and that's when Toni Morrison's at her best. I mean, they're obviously the writing is so good. I mean, my God, her first sentences alone, you know, like, like quiet as it's kept, there were no marigolds in the fall of 1941 or nuns go, go, or nuns go quiet. No, nuns go by as quiet as lust. I mean, my God, that's some writing, you know, I mean, that is writing, but also it just comes from a deep, just a loving place. I mean, you know, I don't know if you're aware of this, but I think in some sort of acceptance speech she gave in the 80s, or I, I don't remember what date, but it was after she won an award and she'd been asking about what was the impetus? Why did you write Beloved? And she was, she had this speech about, um, you know, because there was no monument, there was no small bench by the road, you know, to, to honor that particular experience of slavery. And so there's now a bench by the road project that's led by an outfit that does great work and they actually put yeah. benches yeah, they put benches in places of prominence in the American slavery period. And I was like, wow, that, this, is, this is exceptional. This is exactly what you should do if you have a gift, you know, and you care about other people. You know, you try to deploy that in service of uplifting them. Hmm. Yeah, I, I think, I don't know, we get so trained in this country to think in terms of these things, in terms of identity, you know, and I don't know, I always think about it because it's like when I was... 15, 16, 
I read like the Invisible Man over and over again, and I was like, "Well, what's what? What is?" And I've thought about it. I was just like, "What was going on back then?" Where this was like the only book that I thought was good, and I was just like, "Oh well, you know what? It's a really great book. (laughs) (laughs) It's like I could make, I could make, I could probably write like a long essay about, you know, like what I was feeling as like a minority in a mostly white place, and why this like sort of opening scene of a man, you know, in the basement surrounded by light, and then that, you know." why that was meaningful to me, but also it's just like, I don't know. Is there really a better opening few pages to a book than that? Like, I don't think so. I don't, maybe there is, <laughs> but I would say probably not. So maybe Julian maybe wants that's to why I argue it. for Morrison's opening actually over that. <laughs> they're all good. They're all good. Oh, um, but yeah, should we let Andy ask some questions? Andy, you've been so quiet. <laughs> no, I, yeah. I was thinking kind of along the same lines as the other questions. What I'm curious about is, um, <laughs> I did. I looked up where Guam is in the world right before this, and I was like, "Oh my god, this is so far in Asia." And I'm curious about that experience of like. It seems like the reference points in this book are all about a particular universe that is specific to Guam, but um, you know, it's 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 recognizable to us, but only like parts of it. In the sense that you know, your your high school speech where you talk about some of you will go to Seattle or San Francisco. Um, I have extended family in Hawaii, so I spent time there and I asked them, like, you know, what do they think about the mainland? And, you know, they don't go to New York or Boston, right? They go to California and Washington. Um, and so I'm, I am, I'm kind of curious about, like, for for you and your friends and your family growing up, um, did you, I mean, assume like the pop culture is still like American, right? And... Is it, is it is it but you know as we've just been talking about the the authors you relate to or the 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 art you relate to is not necessarily the dominant white culture right it's like the colonized the oppressed the people who are sort of speaking for marginal community is that a, is that a thing where you feel like that's kind of common among your friends and your family or do you feel like that's kind of you specifically identifying with this particular group um, at the margins um, yeah I'm, I'm just kind of curious like what is what is it like to grow up in that kind of double situation. Oh, that's a great question. A big question. Um, yeah. Of course, I can I can only speak to my own experience. You know, I have there's so many people who, you know, would maybe disagree, <laughs> you know, but uh, for me, I mean, just my close circle of friends, like we all gravitate, I think, toward that, the sort of what you would describe as the marginal, you know, mm-hmm. voices or the ones who started at the margin and shifted the center because the writing was so good, you know, but we love that literature. Like we actually, I was talking to one of my best friends who, Desiree, who we went to school together since we were like babies you know uh, we talked about our high school experience or you actually met her uh, you didn't meet her but you read the ending where there was an interview oh, with her. Yeah. that's her and we actually talked a lot about a lot about the sort of the books that we even talked we had disagreements about even books like how Mango street by sandra cisneros you know oh, which was that. also like <laughs> you know, yeah which i i'm advocating for so like anyway there's been so many <laughs> yeah. uh, different because i wanted to use vignettes like go old school like yeah. narrow style like vignettes <laughs> with these things and she was like so we talked about a lot of that and i think that's natural i think it's so natural to identify with literatures that arise out of these sort of factual circumstances these historical circumstances these contexts these mm. communities because we are all sort of like you know, in all of our communities, in varied ways, the battle is on, you know, whether it's for inclusion, identity, equality, whatever it is. Like, and so we write with, I mean, there's so much um, of us who produce literature that has that sense of urgency in it. I mean, that was another issue, right? Like when you earnestness or urgency or it, it's it's said to ruin art, you know, that was like a very, like almost like a thesis that I was challenging with my book too, because it feels really urgent here on Guam. I mean, Empire is here and banging the door down. I mean, we in Guam are, can barely hear ourselves think because yeah. like, it's just war, war games on our seat. Yeah. You know, the U.S. is militarizing the land and the ocean, you know, and we're all sort of in this precarious place. It's like the coming, like just around the corner is doom and we can feel it. It's palpable and it's coming and it's, you know, we're and we're like in it, you know. And so there's there's no way that I can write without that sense of urgency. Mm -hmm. That doesn't I don't believe that makes the writing less good, you know. Yeah. I just believe it makes it, you know, real and sort of like, like connected to the the world, you know, that we are in right now. Because I was trying to like where I was writing a book, you know, 
to just help young people understand the world we're in, not only the world we wish it to be, you know, and there's mm-hmm. a difference. And like dealing with that honestly and reckoning, reckoning with that, with these ghosts, you know, that we're haunted by. Um, can we can, can we back up just a little bit, just so that the listeners can be aware of a lot of this? Because I think that some of them might not be aware of the history of this. But, you know, like the history that you're talking about is not a new history. It's not like something that happened in the last 10 years. Nuclear testing started in the 40s, I think, in the, you know, uh, in that area. Mm-hmm. Um, and so obviously for, you know, your parents' generation, for your own generation, it's certainly like, you know, from when the day you're born, I imagine that you feel this. So can you can you just talk about that a little bit? You know, like what is the, the history of militarism in yeah. that area from the U.S. military to the point where, you know, like you have something like you talked about, which is like sailors coming off of COVID boats and running around going into restaurants and stuff like that, which I'm sure you see as an out, outcropping of the same thing, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, give, give us a little bit of history of that. Sure. Um, you know, Guam, the United States has stymied our tomorrow self-determination efforts for 122 years and counting. We, we have been like struggling for self-determination for a very long time. Guam remains um, a colony. Um, the UN recognizes, so Guam, unlike certain other places, which are also colonized, um, but aren't on a UN list, the UN keeps a list, and it's a list of non-self-governing territories whose peoples are recognized formally as colonized and are entitled to the remedy of decolonization. So they're put on a list, and they're slated for some future act of self-determination, where they will vote to become independent, you know, uh, whether they vote for integrate statehood, free association, or independence. That's just shorthand. But basically, yeah, Guam has been colonized for a very long time. Um, and we, and of course, our colonization, to be clear, goes it way, way yeah. past the United <laughs> States. Years, yeah. Exactly. Right. We, we were 500 years in. We're deep in, you know, the colonial <laughs> enterprise, you know. So um, Spain first colonized us, then the United States, then Japan briefly during World War II, and then what was recaptured by the United States. So Guam has been under a thumb, for, you know, many, many years. And, and that's what the part of the colonialism is, though. Like, I mean, the U.S. So the U.S. military engaged in massive land grabbing, particularly after World War II, mm-hmm. um, changed the traditional, you know, subsistence based economy into a cash one, um, then imposed a wide range of laws that sort of like the Jones Act and other cabotage laws that prohibit economic development. Um, mm. it, so we so can't really work or develop economy with the region. Um, under certain under these restrictions, um, the U.S. military has uh, taken like even when in 1950, when the Organic Act of Guam was given was passed by Congress, giving Guam a, a certain a particular kind of citizenship, um, it was really done in part to effectuate a massive land grab. So Guam's mm-hmm. only you should know Guam is tiny; it is like roughly 30 miles long. You know, it's just so hyper militarized. And that way, it's that way I always feel like the people of Okinawa are kin to me because yeah, I understand yeah. what it feels like to be host to all of that empire. Like the Okinawa is what, less than a percent of Japan's landmass, but plays host to like how much of its bases, like right. clearly over half. And so and it's it's just a lot of concentrated hard concentrated hard military power, you know. And so Guam has been like that for some time, um, and still to this day, the U.S. occupies roughly a third of the island, and actually is building more. So that's part of the when I talk about maybe it's helpful if I be even more concrete. For example, in October 2020, the U.S. military Christian a brand new base, yet another base, a Marine Corps base, Camp Loss, and that so there was like I think a sort of like perverse little ribbon cutting ceremony on that day, but mm-hmm. October, 2020. Yeah. And it's the first new permanent Marine base in, since 1952. So we're in it's some ways built in the world or in the world, in yeah. the world. Yeah. Right. From yeah. the Marines in particular, mm-hmm. I feel like we're going, we're being yanked and being dragged backward in time. Yeah. You know, like this is terrible. Seriously. It's 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 staggering what we're up against, you know. And so but there's also resistance to be clear. It's, you know, we're not just taking shit lying down all the time. 
you know, so we have an activist co- like or organizations, community based organization, and I can tell you now it was like my biggest honor last year to file a submission to the Office of the High Commissioner of Human Rights on behalf of a community based organization that I really respect, Protehi La Texan. They are trying to save, you know, they're in particular they are advocating against the construction of a massive five range live fire training range complex in one of our most ecologically sensitive and culturally significant sites on Guam. And this is a site where our indigenous medicine women gather plants to make the medicine, traditional medicine. I mean, this is one of the things that we have, you know, and that's that's why we fight so hard because yes, we're not free technically, but we have to sometimes be really strategic and see that there's this gigantic war. And sometimes you need to, chisel it down, break it down into bite-sized battles, you know, just winnable, like fightable battles. So we're trying to do that just with specifically around this massive firing range in this area. That's really Mm -hmm. important to my people. And so we're, we're working on that. Um, We've obviously done like the last decade where there's been litigation, we have been trying to challenge it, but you know, but the U S federal court system routinely has routinely sided with the U.S. military. Even Earth Justice yeah. tried to help us in the Northern Islands, and we've lost like every yeah, case. Every case we've lost. All of us have lost. Not like just all all of the legal nonprofits. We've just all been, you know, yeah, um, sort of obliterated in court because the U.S. federal court sees the U.S. military, you know, and yeah. even when it doesn't say it, it sees the political question. It it exactly. exercises what it calls judicial restraint, and like, oh, it's the military. Oh, okay. Right. That, yeah. security concerns and yeah then, security and then it's done yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. Is it, yeah and is it fair to say that you know i think for a lot of listeners who are of east asian descent that this stuff is connected that a lot of this is about the united states military security policy towards east asia and oh, they think of yeah. right and they think oh for of, sure i mean this, so this, this is all North connected. Korea as well, an obsession right? like an obsession yeah. to contain china this policy right, right. of containment yeah, exactly. that's been around forever. It's it's right. an obsession and it's like has real world consequences. The problem for us is that, you know, even activist groups in the continental US just fail to see what's happening in Guam is connected to their struggles. And that's right. a, yeah. a spectacular failure yeah. of the political and the organizer's imagination. Right. Because what happens here is what ha- connected absolutely to what's happening there. Like the right. defund the police is connected to defund the Pentagon. These are absolutely shared struggles, but there's been no cross-fertilization. Yeah. I think Cornell totally. West recently called for it, but there's just been a lack. Do, do people in Guam, um, your friends, are they also aware like of making these connect, international connections between yes. like, why is the base here? What's the motiv- yeah. motivation for by the US and all that? For sure. And we've done a really good job in Guam of connecting with, for example, demilitarization activists in Japan and in Okinawa and in North Korea. That's how we know Christine Ahn, for example. Oh, yeah. But exactly. but also we've done a le- yeah, we, we have more work to do with regard to connecting with U.S. continental organizers and activists. So right. recently, um, Nick Estes and the Red Nation podcast, they, mm-hmm. they are agreed to um, interview the, the women, the young Chamorro women leaders of Prete La Texan, who, who I support, oh, right? Gosh. So we've linked them up and they, that, that should be something. And we're trying to make moves on that end to have more connections with the indigenous um, struggles, you know? Um, against extractive industries in yeah. the United States, so I think that would be, you know, that's great, very helpful. And is this is this sense of like I don't know comparative or cross indigenous solidarity? Do you feel like a lot of it is in reaction to like this, the events of the last few decades, or do you feel like there's like a deeper historical sense of you know like centuries or or, or even longer of like we are all some sort of is there some sort of essential sense of, of solidarity, or is that just like not really? It's really about current events. Gosh, Andy, that's such a great question. I believe, <laughs> I believe that we haven't articulated it in cer- enough in, in some ways, but I yeah. believe what connects a lot of these, particularly these indigenous anti-colonial struggles, you know, like struggles like that the Red Nation takes on, right? And the yeah. water de- protectors and defenders. I believe that it is actually an older story. I believe what right, we're yeah. in now, the particular moment is just the latest iteration you know, in this very long course, you know, this process, this diet of dispossession, and they're mm-hmm. connected. And that's why our grievances always feel in some ways logistically cumbersome, 
because we're always asking for things that require lots of change and big shifts, you know, and we want land back. So these are real like a demands, yeah. you know, and, and they're difficult in some ways. Yeah. And, and they're also difficult because the U.S. has legally, politically and culturally sort of like a really uh, prioritized um, the individual the, an individualistic yeah. framework for redress and reparations, which is incompatible totally. with the fact that groups have been treated as such, as groups, you know, and so our demands are collective and they're big, you know, and so they require a, a shift in our thinking, you know, into more group-based harm and group-based remedies. Yeah. And, but all of that gets challenged in court. For example, us yeah. in Guam, all of these legal challenges that have been filed and levied against the indigenous movement have been, again, for example, by a white plaintiff seeking to use these reconstruction amendments to deploy them in a new way, not mm -hmm. to say that actually group-based anything is race, racial on its face. And that is wildly problematic. And that's yeah. exactly what makes it hard for people all across the U.S., you know? Yeah. Well, what is the, what's the relationship for, there's 163,000 people in Guam, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, like, what is the general sense about, you know, resistance and, and, um, activism and like are the majority of the people just sort of like well this is what life is like and don't stir you know don't stir the pot too much um like or is this or is it you know is there a tradition of this that sort of goes through the entire population that's a great question um jay and it's uh to be fair i mean that's a fair question um and not everyone obviously in guam would agree with what i'm saying I mean, to be frank, mm -hmm. many people in the community are not only not against the buildup, but they're just pro-United States federal government, pro-U.S. Yeah. projection of hard power, pro-U.S. every branch of armed forces in general, mm -hmm. because there's a lot of patriotism, which is linked in part to our brutal occupation yeah. by Japan and our inability yeah. in some ways to make a logistical shift out of the World War II moment of gratefulness, quote unquote, with air quotes. Um, so there's a, there's a lot to unpack, to be clear, about, about why there is resistance or there isn't. But I will say, um, I've been an activist for not obviously so long, but well over a decade coming on two, you know? Um, and I can absolutely say that the, there's a burgeoning resistance movement. There's mm -hmm. a, the numbers are way bigger than they were before. We have gatherings. We had a gathering with thousands of people. We have petitions with tens of thousands of people right. who are, you know, and they're okay signing uh, where, because we have particular grievances. Even people that are otherwise patriotic are actually very per uh, upset about particular aspects of this buildup because the harm is just the scale of the mm -hmm. of the harm and the at the range of the adverse impacts to land and sea is just too much to bear you know and and so it's elicited outrage from several people in the community even people who are otherwise are not predisposed to being on that side of an issue so it's yeah. growing it's absolutely mm -hmm. growing i mean man it is like shocking when i first started i i remember being at protests with five other people yeah. <laughs> in 2006, when the U.S. first wow. announced the military buildup, mm. I remember writing a column um, was when I played on James Baldwin's title, you know, The Fire Next Time, and in the mm. local paper, and it was like the only anti-militarist column back then in 2006. And now it's mm. like, wow, it's great yeah. because there's a, a, just a, a range of faces and well, voices why is it, and people. Why is, it, That's incredible. why is it building or how did you build oh, it? Oh, it's like, building one because it's so outrageous. You know, when something's that outrageous, you know, people <laughs> naturally respond to it. Um, but two, because I believe that I believe that we're in a new moment. I believe the world has changed. I mean, this is 2006, right? The very next year, the UN passed the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, right? 2007. And then afterwards, you see concrete success stories coming out of all over the world, you know, where, where more and more countries are recognizing at least a limited right a set of rights, mm -hmm. but there are more rights than they were recognized before. And then also the Dakota Access Pipeline and ever, all the things that have happened that have been so arresting. And I think what indigenous peoples are have been able to do, I mean, we've been doing a lot of work for a long time, even when we were unsuccessful, but we've really captured the legal imagination, yeah. I think. And yeah, and it's shifted, you know? And we're like, we, our current economic model, our current system is incompatible with life on earth. Like it just, we can't really get around really? Certain, certain things. So some things feel like we have to, it just feels very urgent and true that we have to change how we relate to the earth 
you know, and how we relate to each other. And a lot lot of people are respecting the indigenous peoples who are blocking, you know, these pipelines with their bodies, you know, Hmm. and who are on that front line of blockadia, as Naomi Klein would call it, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Is there that type of... Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Tammy. Oh, well, I was just going to say, like, it does seem like over these past 10 or 15 or 20 years, as like, Indigenous intellectuals have been rising up and gaining more prominence along with indigenous indigenous activists all over the world. Like it's it's not a coincidence that that's also the period in which there's this identification of this climate apocalypse that's looming and this kind of death and critique, I think, of Western liberalism and its failures, you know, in kind of late capitalism like that. That makes perfect sense. And and yet, like, you know, I think we don't necessarily always connect those things like it almost feels like incidental, like, oh, yeah, there are a few sort of prominent, you know, Native American writers or intellectuals that have risen up and therefore but actually it's this whole kind of you know convergence of all of these kind of international trends yeah for sure i totally agree with you tammy on that and also and there's even even more native scholars writing about this particular thing from this particular angle like leanne simpson is writing great stuff her her book her most recent book as we have always done was phenomenal but it's also about that it's 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 about it's about everything we're speaking about so Mm. I, I like. I just saw that you know, like for so, it, you know, with uh, with Standing Rock or with the pipeline protests, and you know, where you were talking about the you know, the place where your medicine women gather, you know, things for traditional medicines. Is there like is there a similar occupation movement going on? You know, like a putting your body, I mean, putting your body in that space so they, you know, so they cannot actually pave it over and turn it into like a firing range or turn it into a you know, a landing strip or something like that. Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, first, it's logistical. Uh, in some ways, it's 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 the analogy is hard to stretch to this situation because so many of the sites that are where all of this is happening are not actually they're already behind gates. You know, they're they're uh, U.S. military okay. occupied areas mm-hmm. that we can't actually have access to. So many of these things, so uh, yeah. like that similar type of like sit in or that would be ineffectual. Right. Because it's right. too, we can't even access. And that's that's mm-hmm. the first problem. But the second yeah. one is, you're right, that there's been um, not enough direct action. But Portella Texan is a direct action group, the one we filed on behalf of. And they've done, oh, like hundreds of activities. I mean, I mean, it's so many inspiring activities, including protests and everything. But there, so far, there's been no arrests. And there's also been no, like, breaking in to where the bases are, for example, and, and, and all of that. But there may be. I, I don't know. I'm not aware of any right now. Mm. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the, you know, about what we, we touched on it earlier, but the sort of legacy of, of, of like nuclear testing and, and yeah. um, in that area, because you write about it very well in your book. And I've, I want to read part of the book back to you, which is uh, the truth is this. Nuclear weapons do not have to be used to be deadly. As Arundhati Roy says, it would be supreme folly to think so. Quote, nuclear weapons pervade our thinking. They bury themselves like meat hooks deep into the base of our brains. They're the ultimate colonizer. Can you, can you talk about that a little bit? And can you give us a little history of, of what, of, you know, behind that and why it was important for you to include that in your book? Sure. Um, that, well, that's a quote from Arundhati Roy. And it actually, it, it comes from the piece, birthday cakes mean birthdays. And I was writing about this experience because, you know, it's one thing to be a reporter from the U.S. continent reporting on this. And Guam did see a, like a convergence for the first time ever of yeah. news, news outlets from around the world coming and converging on Guam to cover this story. Because of, of course, you know that the context behind that article was that uh, was being threatened with nu- nuclear, North Korea was threatening us, right? With nuclear weapons and saying that actually if they launch one of their missiles, it would take 14 minutes to reach Guam. So I was like, wow, 14 minutes. And I just reflected on what 14 minutes to steal ourselves for the possibility of oblivion. I was like, what is that like, you know, that experience? So I, I, I wrote about that. Um, and so I, I think I've said this part about um, when, remember when I think it was the Wall Street Journal came out like X amount of days after they said, oh, their threat's been uh, neutralized. North Korea said it won't do anything unless the Yankees act up again later. And so they pulled out. And I remember thinking all of the reporters, because I had spoke to a few of them and they were just completely certain, you know, that they were, that it was good. That's a wrap. 
you know, the, the show's yeah, over, folks. Over and they, all left. Yeah. <laughs> they all left with the scent. They were like, peace out. And I was like, wow, none of you understand this at all. You just don't understand what's happening here. Nuclear yeah. weapons, you know, they're deadly because they contaminate the, like, even, and it's the same for colonialism, Jay. It's the same. It's it's not just the taking of the land. It's the col- the breaking of the spirit. It's the colonizing of the mind and the imagination. And that's what it. What is it like to to have the air you breathe be constantly sort of under siege, under a threat of of like nuclear annihilation? And to be clear, it's not over. And right after that, China also launched for. Uh, ballistic missiles into the South China Sea, one of which it actually named Guam Killer. Holy shit. One of the missiles is nicknamed Guam Killer. And I was like, y'all don't get any of this. I was like, because they those reporters bounced, you know, yeah. and with the idea that, oh, you know, I was like, because they don't understand any of this. Like Guam, if, if, if North Korea and China and the U.S. are playing this, you know, this game of or if they're playing chicken with nuclear weapons, you know, who's suffering like us on the front lines, you know, the Mm -hmm. receiving end of these nuclear weapons. And, and this region, we already know what it means to be on the receiving end of these weapons between 1946 and 1958, the U S dropped 67 atomic and then thermonuclear weapons on the people of the Marshall islands, which is just 1200 miles from here. I mean, even some of the planes that flew through the radioactive plumes were then sent to Guam and flushed out. They're flushed Mm. out in the harbor where my father worked. I mean, this is pretty. And that's another reason why I wanted, like, I started to become clear about what I was doing with this book. I was deploying the feminist insight that the personal is political. Yeah. Yeah, the other famous examples are um, Xinjiang in China, New Mexico. These are like the sort of places that get sacrificed in the long history, like testing and waste and all that stuff. So yeah, 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 yeah. that incredible Kissinger quote in the book where oh, yeah, he's talking about good. how there's you know all these effects from the testing and he's like, "Oh, who gives a shit? Only 90,000 people live there." And just like, wow, what a fucking monster, you know. Um I think also about how I guess, you know, the the US sort of just assumes if if they if they get kind of rejected from Okinawa, then they can go to the Northern Marianas. Then they can go to Guam. You know, there's this a little bit of kind of unexpected like whack a moleing mm-hmm. because they they think like the activists don't share the critique that you just presented across these boundaries. You know, and and I think like in terms of the the way that you know that whole region of Asia and Australasia and the Pacific has been kind of colonized by this nuclear critique that you have about mm-hmm. you know, but. I guess I'm wondering about if you guys have been able to effectively organize across borders to ward this off because yeah, again, I think like, you know, they're getting so much pressure from Okinawa. So they go to this other place and then they go to this other place and they think they can just take their nuclear weapons and their, you know, traditional weapons wherever they want. Yeah. Um, So how do you, how do you then deal with that so that you're not, you know, competing against the activists in other places? Yeah. I think that's why like, you know, solidarity amongst these groups, you know, is critical, obviously. Yeah. I mean, we do we do what we can. We've done a pretty good job. I mean, even with the people, the demilitarization activists in Hawaii, because, you know, the 5,000 U.S. Marines that are being shipped from, right, or coming from Okinawa to Guam, we're, we're not the only ones. Australia is also mm-hmm. getting them. Hawaii is mm-hmm. also getting an increased amount of personnel. And so our fates are connected. And I believe the only yeah. way to win is to win, to, like, together. Like, we can't be, you know the NIMBY stuff, right? Obviously, but we have to be, <laughs> but we have to be together. And a lot of us are, I mean, a lot, if you really look at, um, if you really interrogate some of the messaging that comes out of the activist groups, you can tell that that messaging is the sort of fruit of some labor, some actual work that went into um, across the board, like Okinawa and Guam, we don't do those things, you know, whereas we may have once before, we definitely don't do them now. You know, our fates are connected and our agenda has to be bigger. So that's part of the key, right? The key is the demand. Your demand has to be clearly articulated. We're not just only trying to oppose the military buildup. We're trying to defund the Pentagon. We're trying to, you know, make sure that it's not just being like, like spread elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you know, we're just set all in this horrible, wretched little game of s- sacrificing each other for a little bit of gain. And that yeah. cannot be the future. It, yeah. it, it, because if it's that, if that's the future, it's not even worth fighting for. Well, we we those, need a future worth fighting for. 
like one of the things where that becomes so clear is something that you've had a you've done a lot of work in and as both a lawyer and I think as an activist and that's the climate right mm. and um I think that when you talked about uh being this island of not, uh, 160,000 people and being at right in the center of the war games between three empires right? um it's also true it seems like of where you are and climate crisis as well right yeah. so can you can you talk about some of the work that you've done there i know that you're that you're at the legal organization that you work for is heavily invested in in climate work as well so um yeah, yeah just do you have a sense of that um yeah there's well obviously there's so many people who work on climate but in this particular region one of the ways that we've come at climate work is actually from a different intersection we approached it from extractive industries so in the pacific um there is what people call a new global gold rush and multinational corporations and countries alike are scrambling to the bottom of the ocean you know, to the seafloor or to the hydrothermal vents that eat down there in the benthic yeah. deep sea environment, because there's a staggering amount of mineral wealth, I mean, in rare earth mineral minerals and metals, right? And so the part of the problem is that most of all of that wealth is in the clarion clipperton fracture zone. Most of that is in and around the EEZs of Pacific Island countries. So what we what we already see is this, you know, this this rush to basically put green light this new extractive industry. And what we're saying is like, no, let's follow the science. Let's figure out what's happening. And we already know that this would be a, quote, doomsday climatic event if deep sea mining were to proceed unchecked in the way that certain players like the European Union want this industry to proceed. Pacific Island countries and all of our communities would be the most directly and disproportionately impacted by the adverse consequences of that industry. And so actually we've we've become many little scientists and we we followed like this bevy of scientific reports that started coming out roughly 2012 until now. Mm -hmm. And they're just one little study after another after another. They confirm, you know, that this really would be um a a terrible um, climatic event. And I'll be, let me be a little more specific. So carbon dioxide is one thing, but methane is so much more powerful, right? As a, as a greenhouse gas. And so what happens is all those tiny little microorganisms that live at the bottom of the sea, they eat methane, they sequester the gas, right? And so to release all of that, that methane into yeah. there, maybe the ocean would no longer function as a global carbon sink, right? And that is a problem yeah. because it, oh, the ocean plays such a huge role. You know, and so it's in a role that's really been undervalued in the climate justice conversation because we come at it and we're very experienced with the whole laws and legal frameworks around deep sea mining. We've been able to leverage that to make better climate justice arguments specifically Mm -hmm. for our region, you know, by tying the issues together. And I think it's the reason why I like that example. It just shows us what we have to do. We're all all of us are cheetahs on the move. All of us have to think quickly, you know, and creatively, and we have to link our causes and no longer and just break all the silos down because clearly they're not working, you know. Yeah. 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 It's so ironic too because that whole search for the minerals, you know, undoing all of the methane sinking—it's exactly the opposite of what everyone's saying we're supposed to be doing, which is finding new ways for oceans to act as a sink. Yeah. But it's it hilarious. Is, it's, they it's, just talk past each other in those conversations. Yeah, it's funny, but it's like what Jay was saying. It's Orwellian, right? It's like, yeah. ooh, <laughs> ooh. Like, right, like wait, totally you know? separate. Yeah. yeah, it's like on Monday, I'm passionately pro-A, you know? And on Tuesday, I'm pr- passionately anti-A. You know, it's just like yeah. the exact opposite proposition, depending exactly. on the day. It's just ridiculous. I mean, that's why we need this big picture, massive, you know, like linked, you know, struggle. And that's partly mm-hmm. why I like uh, seeing sort of iterations of the Green New Deal, why I like, I appreciate the like writing of Julian, you know, noise, uh, Brave Noise Cat. Brave like, Cat. Yeah, Brave Noise Cat, he, he's great. And like just the different linking uh, of mm-hmm. things. And, and Nick Estes and everyone else, Roxanne, Dabaratis, all these people mm-hmm. are just, mm-hmm. we're all just trying to link these things and become ever more articulate, you know? I, but for a purpose, right? To move the hearts and the minds you know, of everyone else that we're working with or not yet working with, but need to start working with. Mm-hmm. Um, I, we're coming up on an hour here. So like, um, we don't want to take too much more of your time, but like, is there any, is have any last questions, um, you know, for, for Jillian here? Cause uh, we've gone, we've gone over a lot and uh, a- Jillian, 
Thank you for having so much energy at 7 a.m. I know. It's incredible. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. This is my first podcast I've ever done in my life. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. that's good. You're a natural at it. Seriously. Oh, you're yeah. good at it. I can't um, wait for this. Yeah. So I have a ahead, basic Addy. question. Um, yeah. As, it's like a very simple one, I guess. But, you know, having... I assume that several of your you and your classmates you reference this. They go to the continental U.S. for college. Yeah. Um, I assume... Is, does that kind of create a sort of... Um, like when you go back home, is there the kind of like a, a, a social sort of, you can detect like, did someone like spend years outside the Guam and come back or did someone stay here the whole time? And did you personally have this like wrestling with yourself? Like, should I stay in the continental US where there might be more like job opportunities or, you know, or, or did you feel like I have to go home um, because that is where I feel, um, you know, where my, yeah. my goals are? Yeah. Uh, yeah, again, it's a complicated question only because I can't speak to other people. I don't know if other people experience that, but for me, I felt it, it felt very clear that I had to come home. Um, and it's like, once you see something, you can't unsee it, you know? And I graduated right, right at the time, you guys, almost at the very moment, this, this grand, massive military buildup was first announced in 2006 is when I graduated. It was just like perfectly aligned. I was like, if I don't go home and fight against this, then what the hell did I go to law school for? What was the point? You know, I was the law, law school in general, the law as a profession, it attracts, you know, clearly two types of people, the people who see law (laughs) as, 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 as the way to basically just gather more personal wealth and power or the people, or the people who want to distribute wealth and power, the people who want to, you know, yeah, basically for the greater common good. I, I see this very clearly. And so for me, I was like, I know exactly what camp I'm in. And I never mm. lost track of that. And so mm. that answers your question. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Great. I mean, it's, uh, are you going to write more books? I mean, I was, you know, I'm yeah. stunned to hear that this is your first book. I just thought it was like very, I don't know, very polished and very good and, and and moving, but uh, do you have aspirations as a writer? Uh, yeah, actually, I do. I, I didn't even really know I did <laughs> until until writing this, and I think it's because something about this process um, it just felt so different. I, it's hard to describe, you know, when you're lawyering and you're even when you're doing good work, you know, you're still like in some ways shooting a gun, you know, like you're just you have a target. You, it's very it's very different, right? But it's adversarial, obviously, in nature. But when you do this, uh, when you write, it's like it's you're building a fire and you're trying to warm as many bodies as possible. And so it's, it's very loving and different. And I, and I could use more of that. I think I could. I wouldn't <laughs> mind. I think I wouldn't mind being a writer more full time. That Tam, if you that, talk about going from lawyer to writer, then Tam, I'm sure Tammy has a lot to tell you. I think Julian's more talented vastly at both. So I have no good advice for you, Julian, but we won't tell your law partners that you're thinking about leaving. <laughs> that, that, Alexi, uh, that Alexi story was autobiographical. Was that a true thing that he said he saw you and you could tell oh, yeah. that? I saw him at Andy's bookstore. Yeah. And you said, you told him you want to be a writer and he said, I could tell. Yeah. From the look in your eyes. Yeah. Yeah. And That's this cool. was young Sherman. Sherman. This was long hair Sherman. You know, this was <laughs> way, way back before anything. But I also tried to even do the contemporary stuff of, you know, wrestling with certain things like the Me Too movement in a footnote, that yeah. kind of stuff. Um, right. But yeah, when I was young and I remember, I just looked at him and was like, wow, I can't believe I'm seeing him in real life, you know? And I walked up to him and he said that. And I was like, I never forgot it. And I think I wrote about it there, right? I, I, there was this, because he, you know, he writes fiction. So I said, I think I wrote something like, and right there in Auntie's fiction section, I learned something true about power, that even small things like eyes can wield it. He seems to have, you so know, funny. obviously it is now uh, all very you know, different because of the revelations of the, that came out about him. But, yeah. you know, I think he has that for personal power. I remember cause I, when I was like 19, I was living in Seattle and I, read story that he published in the New Yorker about a somebody pawns off things and lives under the, you know, the Alaskan way viaduct. And, oh, wow. and I was like, Oh my God, this story, you know, like it was, and then I saw him and then it was, it was similar. It was like, I'm almost never starstruck, but I felt totally starstruck in that moment. Mm. Um, I get that. Uh, <laughs> if, yeah. I, if I saw, if I saw R and Dottie Roy right now, I could actually die. 
Oh my yeah. god. I, well, I, 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 I think I would also be starstruck by her. We would all lose our shit at <laughs> that I, point. I like, oh, <laughs> you know, like, this seems like such a exemplary life that you've led. And yeah. also, I really did like your novel. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much, you guys. This is really, uh, it means so much to me. Thank you, Julian. Yeah, thank you, Julian. Um, yeah, we're, you've touched um, us with your book and your work. Thanks. Yeah, and we will, uh, this will be out on Tuesday and we'll send you something. So thank you. Uh, I'm just going to close up the show. So thank you for listening to the show. Um, thank you also to all of our supporters on Patreon. Uh, if you want to help support our show, the it's patreon.com slash ttsg pod and as always you can get in touch with us through email which is time to say goodbye pod at gmail.com or on twitter you can either find any of our twitters or um you can the show has a twitter too which is ttsg pod and our dms are open julian how can people reach you or do you want them to do you want them to reach you (laughs) oh for sure i hope people go out and get the book obviously Um, yeah you can always go to my author website which we just launched it's julianuggin.com j-u-l-i-a-n-h-g-u-o-n and oh no julianuggin.com or um, you could, yeah, you, the book is also available on Books A Million and Barnes and Noble and uh, Amazon. I mean, different places. Don't yeah. buy it today. Yeah, not yeah. today. Is, but, yeah. Right. But, uh, yeah, um, you can pre-order it now. Okay, and we yeah don't um, and uh, yeah we are going to put a link to all of that in our show notes and send it out on social media as well. But yeah, thank you for 